Thank you, Sam and Diane, for leading us in that song. Um, it is one of the songs that I would like for us as a congregation to learn uh, during this series of sermons that we are going to be getting today. Um, a series entitled, Living on Earth, the Kingdom of Heaven. Well, have you ever, have you ever heard people attacking the church as being fake? Or as being full of hypocrites? How do you react when you hear such accusations brought out? Perhaps this morning you yourself may hold some of these accusations. Or perhaps you know others who think this way. How should we respond? What these people rightly recognize is that Christians claim to be different than the world, but fail to live up to their message. These people do not see Christians to be different than non-Christians. Friendly Friends, I humbly want to say this morning that I am afraid. I'm afraid we live in a day and age when such critics are more right than they have ever been before. And I'm afraid that if Jesus lived today among us, he probably would join some of their criticism. Actually, the first sermon that we have recorded from Jesus is a sermon that is geared at bringing out the reality of religious hypocrisy. Yet, while Jesus would join the band of critics who point out the hypocrisy, Jesus would also defer from such critics by continuing to offer hope and call people to the true light. What often characterizes critics who accuse the church of hypocrisy is that they use their accusations as reasons to refuse to pursue God. Friends, Jesus does offer a sharp criticism against superficial spirituality and against show-off piety. He points out to us our spiritual masks, but He also helps us to discover the authentic relationship with God that makes a difference in our lives so that they, we are indeed the salt of the earth, the light of the world, and so that indeed the world would see a difference in those who call themselves Christians. Friends, today we begin a new series of sermons on the Sermon on the Mount. And I encourage you to open Scripture to Matthew chapter 5. If you have a pew Bible this morning, it's one of the red Bibles in, in the pews, uh, we find this passage on page 838. And as you're turning there, let me let just let you know that for the next three months, we will study these three chapters found in the Gospel of Matthew. And my hope today is that we would get an overview of the sermon before we deal with each of the parts uh, separately. And the best thing you can do this week to prepare for the sermon series is actually to read the sermon a few times in one sitting. Actually, this is what we will do this morning. We will read it in its entirety from chapter 5, verse 1, to chapter 7, verse 28. And I know this is going to be a stretch. We've never read three chapters before a sermon. You can only imagine how long the sermon will be if the text is three chapters. <laughs> but I think one of the best ways we can get an overview of this sermon is just let it out, hear it, read it in its entirety. So let's prepare our hearts. Page 838 in the Pew Bibles, Matthew Chapter 5, verse 1. 
Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Everyone who breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who, uh, who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still with him on the way or he may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth. You will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, 
gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes, and your no be no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpet as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need 
before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. When you fast, do not look sober as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men their fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your body, if your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the, the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, Will he not much more clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. 
For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or, if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask Him? So in everything, do to others what you, have, you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord! Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet, it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. 
But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Amen. This was the sermon of the Lord on the mount. Let's pray for this sermon and for our hearts this morning. Father, we ask that your word proclaimed and preached on the Sermon on the Mount would penetrate our hearts this morning. And the words of Jesus, as we have heard them, would carry the authority over our lives as they once used to have. Holy Spirit, we pray for hearts that are open to be corrected and hearts that are open to be encouraged. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. So, what is the Sermon on the Mount about? You have heard it. You could summarize it. And our hope this morning is to do three things briefly. My hope is that we will find an overall theme of this sermon. My hope is that we will look at an overview of the sermon. And finally, my hope is that we will look at an overall challenge of the sermon. Let's begin this morning by looking at the overall theme of the Sermon on the Mount. What is the Sermon on the Mount about? Well, the major biblical theme of the sermon is the following phrase, the kingdom of heaven. The phrase, the kingdom of heaven, is repeated often in this sermon. As a matter of fact, Jesus teaches his disciples to ask for the kingdom of heaven, for the will of God to happen on earth as it happens in heaven. Now, when, when we read in Matthew the phrase, the kingdom of heaven, and by the way, actually the entire gospel of Matthew is very much interested to talk about the kingdom of heaven. Many of the parables in Matthew say, the kingdom of heaven is like, and then goes on. Now, when, when we hear the phrase, the kingdom of heaven, we typically think of, of entering the kingdom of heaven. And we typically think of heaven when we think of entering the kingdom of heaven. But I would like for us to notice that Matthew's primary use of this phrase does not refer to a spatial sense as if it refers to heaven. Matthew, Matthew uses a phrase, the kingdom of heaven, in a dynamic sense. It refers to the reign of God or the dominion of God rather than the territorial kingdom of God as, it, as if it's heaven. The notion of the kingdom of heaven as the dynamic reign of God brings with it notions not of a place, but it brings with the emphasis on God's authority and his reign and dominion and our submission to that dominion. Perhaps the most clear example of, of this definition is found in Matthew 18, 28. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read the following verse. Jesus says, 
But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Does that mean that heaven has come upon Israel in a physical sense, in a spatial sense? No. But it does mean that the authority of Christ to drive out the demons was a proof that the rule of God came to be among the people. It's not a coincidence that at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we are told that the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority. The kingdom of heaven refers to this dynamic sense of the reign of God, the rule of God. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, just a few verses prior to the Sermon on the Mount, we see Jesus preaching the good news of the kingdom of heaven, and his message was this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, was Jesus saying that entering heaven was near? No. But he was proclaiming that God's reign and rule among his people was drawing near, and the way to enter that rule, that reign, is by repenting. This reign of God among men was not to be uh, referring simply to the universal reign of God by which he controls the entire universe. There's a sense we could, we could talk about that kind of reign of God. But when Matthew uses the phrase, a kingdom of heaven, referring to the reign of God, it's a more specific reign. That which is mediated through Christ. Because through the coming of Christ, the rule of God became more prominent among His people. That's why in, in the Sermon on the Mount, in, in chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus stresses the point, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So to enter the kingdom of heaven does not mean necessarily to enter heaven as if we have to wait until we die in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus was preaching the good news of the kingdom, he was talking about entering the reign of God which was coming among men in Christ so that those who follow Christ become a community that displays the reign of God. Even though the reign of God among His people is not fully consummated, is not perfect, as we can all see, if you've been around churches for a long time, you know that the reign of God is not fully consummated among His people, but in Christ, the rule of God is already present among His people. And that's what the church is called to be. And that's what we as individuals are called to do and, and live like. So when we re read in Matthew about this phrase, the kingdom of heaven, here's what I want to encourage you. Do not simply think of heaven, but of the reign of God among us through Christ. And that's why the title for the sermon series that we will be having for the next three months is Living on Earth, the Kingdom of Heaven. So that's, the, that's the, the overall theme of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, once we have identified this theme, I'd like for us to see how this theme plays out in the entire sermon and in the overview of the sermon. So let's look at an overview of, of the Sermon on the Mount. We've already read the sermon in entirety, and I hope and, and pray that as you heard the sermon in, in its entirety, some lights went off as you saw how this entire passage, these three chapters, are one unit. But let's make sure we see the big structure of the sermon. The sermon has only two points, I think. 
two major points. It has an introduction and a conclusion. And both, of, both the introduction and the conclusion have some very powerful images which ought to mold our imagination as Christian followers. And I hope you let those images mold your thinking. The introduction starts from verse 3 and ends in verse 16. It starts with some very radical introductory statements. It's like those speakers who want to make a, a radical claim to get your attention. That's what Jesus does with the Beatitudes. He makes a, a list of very radical statements, and he does grab our attention. He does tell us who are the people who are well off from the kingdom mindset, from the kingdom perspective. We'll talk about that next week. Then Jesus gives three images in the introduction. The image of salt, the image of a city on a hill, and the image of a light. And Jesus says, you, Christ followers, are these images. In other words, to be a part of the kingdom of heaven brings the responsibility to reflect that kingdom on earth. So that's the introduction. Then the body of the sermon and the first point of the sermon begins in in chapter 5, verse 17, and Jesus addresses the, the first point as, as being the demands of the kingdom in light of the Old Testament. Uh, this section goes all the way to verse 48 in chapter 5. Uh, it begins with verse 17 in, where Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And after Jesus tells us his views on the Old Testament law, he gives us a list of examples of how Jews misinterpreted the Old Testament by focusing only on the outward boundaries to the point of distorting God's intent. So Jesus corrects them and tells them that the demands of the kingdom of heaven go deeper than simply the outward performances of these laws. And he talks about, he gives some examples. He talks about murder and hate, divorce and adultery, and taking oaths and lying and love. And then this section ends with a rather surprising sentence, verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This sort of concludes the, the first major point of the sermon, where Jesus talks about the demands of the kingdom in relationship to the Old Testament. Now, it's interesting. I just want to make a connection um, to this verse from this verse to the sermon series that we did last year when we talked about a profile of maturing believers. Remember, the Apostle Paul said his life's mission is that he would, we would proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. It's interesting that not only Paul, but prior to Paul, Jesus himself refers to this notion of perfection as a demand of the kingdom of heaven. We'll talk about that later. I know you have many questions. Me too. Then in chapter 6, he moves on to the second major point of the sermon. And the second major point would be the perspectives of the kingdom on our earthly lives. The perspectives of the kingdom on our earthly lives. And this section goes from chapter 6, verse 1, all the way to chapter 7, verse 12. Here Jesus describes perfection as going beyond the outward performance of religious life. He takes three examples of how we give, how we fast, and how we pray. And then he talks about our treasures. And then he talks about our habits of worrying for our needs. 
Then he talks about our misjudging. And then he talks about boldness before God. And this section ends with an interesting verse. Matthew 7, verse 12, says the following, So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. By referring back to the law and the prophets, Jesus is connecting all of chapter 6 and the 12 verses of chapter 7 to what he said in chapter 5 when he talked about the demands of the kingdom and the relationship to the Old Testament law. Perfection is demanded, but a perfection that exceeds the religion of the Pharisees. So these are the two points, major points of the sermon. And then the sermon concludes, beginning with chapter 7, verse 13. And the conclusion has three wonderful pictures. Each of the pictures gives us two scenarios, the picture of two gates, a narrow gate and a wide gate, a picture of two trees, a good tree and a bad tree, and then the picture of two houses, one built on sand, one built on a rock. And you cannot miss the force of the sermon on how it ends. The house built on the rock endures, while the, rock, the house built on sand crashes. All three pictures are geared to warn the hearers about their assurance of entering the kingdom of heaven and warns them against false pretenders into that kingdom. Friends, this is the overview of the Sermon on the Mount. The big theme, the overall theme of the sermon is the kingdom of heaven. Now I'd like to talk about the overall challenge of the sermon in light of the kingdom of heaven. The overall challenge of the Sermon on the Mount is that it is a criticism and a correction on what the Israelites expected and were looking for when they awaited the kingdom of heaven. The Sermon on the Mount, however, is not a criticism against those who are not willing to be followers of Christ, but only against those who pretend to be religious. So before we, before we consider the overall challenge of this sermon, let me just drive home this point. The Sermon on the Mount does not tell us how to become citizens of the kingdom of heaven. It only tells us what characterizes true citizens of that kingdom. And this is a very important distinction. Notice who is the initial audience of the sermon. Chapter 5, verse 1. It's the disciples. It's those who were committed to follow Jesus. Now, if we read to the end of the sermon, we find out that by the time the sermon was over, the crowds finally got there as well. Often happens this way. I don't know why. But Jesus began preaching the sermon to his disciples, to those who were committed followers of him. So, the Sermon on the Mount is not a moralistic code that tells us that if we live this way, we will go to heaven. It's not a legalistic list of rules where you simply check off what you have to do in order to ensure your entrance into heaven. Friends, if you do not consider yourself a Christian this morning, I want to caution you that the overall challenge of the Sermon on the Mount might, be, might come across to you differently. And I want to make sure you, you, you get the correct way in which this ought to come to you. 
whatever you will hear from this sermon series, please do not get the impression that if you do the Sermon on the Mount, you will go to heaven. You cannot earn your entrance into heaven by following a set of rules, no matter how good those rules are. So I want to tell you this morning what is the foundation on which this entire sermon series is based. I want to tell you the prerequisite for listening to this sermon. For those of you who like taking classes, you've been in school, there are some classes that you, in order to take this class, you've got to take a prerequisite. Well, hearing the Sermon on the Mount is somewhat like a, requiring a prerequisite. And here's the prerequisite for hearing the Sermon on the Mount. It's the words of Jesus found in, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Just a few verses prior to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Friends, before you hear, if you're not a Christian this morning, before you hear the Sermon on the Mount, I want to tell you that the overall challenge for you is the words of Jesus prior to the Sermon on the Mount. Now, why do people need to repent? Because God created this world perfect. Because He's a holy and good God. And He created us in perfection, yet we rebelled against His rule over our lives. That God brought His judgment upon mankind, causing our eternal separation from God. Yet God still loved His creation. He still loved us even though we rebelled against Him. And He had a plan to restore us back to Him, to bring us back into relationship with Him. So He sent Jesus Christ, His Son, His only Son, to live a perfect life and died on the cross he was crucified as a substitute for our guilt before God. And He took upon Himself our punishment, and instead He gave us His perfection so that we may be considered perfect before God. Not because of what we will do or what we will have done, but because and only because of what Christ has done. Now, all those who hear this news and believe it and accept it are called to repent of their sins. And this means to turn away from sin, to turn away from idols, to surrender your life to Christ, to turn yourself in and to plead guilty before a holy God and trust that Christ's sacrifice for you will give you a righteous status. Friend, those who experience that surrender to God will receive from God a new nature, a new birth. And you will receive instead a sense of God's presence in your life. You will experience a hunger for God, a hunger for His Word and for His people in a way that you have never experienced before. And one of the things you will experience is that you will have confidence that now you are part of the kingdom of God. Friends, the only way into the kingdom of heaven is if we're born into it. You cannot work yourself up to it. So before I go on, let me make sure, let me ask you, if you're here this morning and you may think you're a Christian or you're not, have you experienced this new birth into the kingdom of heaven? If you'd like to know more about this, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. But before we talk about the Sermon on the Mount, about the kingdom of heaven, I want to make sure you know how to get it in. For those of you who are in the kingdom, you may say, okay, so if... If we get in the kingdom of heaven through Christ, through what Christ has done and not through what we do, then why worry about the Sermon on the Mount? Then why worry about all these warnings? 
I'm so glad you asked that question. It is because the Sermon on the Mount is a powerful wake-up call to those who think they're going to heaven but won't. Sermon on the Mount is a great wake-up call to those who think they're going to heaven but won't. That's why the Sermon on the Mount is for people who call themselves Christians. There are people who, even though they have accepted intellectually that Christ died for them, they have not received a new nature. A new birth they have not experienced. And their life proves that they have not been born into the kingdom because their inner nature has not been changed. These kinds of Christians are called nominal Christians. We call them nominal Christians because they're Christians by name only, not by nature. And there are many out there. Friends, just because someone calls himself a Christian does not mean that they are. Their inner nature is only the old sinful nature that has never submitted to God's rule in their lives. And it can never submit to God's rule because it's the old nature. Unless they receive a new nature from above, they will never be able to submit to the reign of God, to be part of the dominion of God. Friends, only those who have experienced this new nature can truly rejoice at what Jesus calls blessings in Matthew 5. Only those who have experienced this new nature can really live up and live out the Sermon on the Mount. So the Sermon on the Mount is a wake-up call for those who think they're Christians and are not. But to those who are indeed Christians, the Sermon on the Mount defines what it means to live on earth the kingdom of heaven. We seek to live out the reign of God and the will of God. The first petition of the Lord's Prayer, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This means that members of the kingdom of heaven pray for the will of God to be manifested here on earth, in our lives, in my life, in your life, in our community, in our church. That's what people who have been born into the kingdom pray for. They willingly submit and they ask for more of that. But dear Christians, the will of God and the reign of God is not primarily manifested only in our individual lives. The reign of God is manifested most excellently in the church, in the community of people which God brought into His kingdom. That's why the church, that's why we do church the way we do, and, and we call the church the body of Christ where Christ is the head. That's why we put an emphasis on how we live life together as a congregation, and this is very, very important how we live life, how we live community together, we are called to display the rule of God, the dominion of God, the reign of God on the earth. Friends, I know these days church membership and, and being committed to local body believers is not in fashion, but the way we do community together is the way we display the reign of God among us. So, friends, the way we submit to one another, the way we submit to God, the way we serve one another, and the way the body of Christ grows shows that God is indeed in control, shows that whether or not Christ is indeed the head, shows whether or not he calls the shots. So when we talk about the kingdom of heaven, we're talking about the reign of God in our lives individually, but in our lives corporately. As we approach the sermon on the mount, and as we will be going through the series 
Let me just give you two cautions. Caution not to develop a spirit of arguing against the norms of the kingdom. We should be aware of trying to take them out of context and make them seem superficial or ridiculous. We should be aware of interpreting them in such a way that they appear impossible for us as Christians. They are impossible for us if we've never been born again. The Sermon on the Mount is impossible. But for those who have experienced this new nature, the Sermon on the Mount is calling us to something that is possible, not because of our strength, but because of Christ. So be cautious. But at, if at any point in this series, as we'll, we're, we're getting ready to embark on it, if at any point in the series you are driven to despair, even as a Christian, if you think that that despair would lead you to something impossible, there's no way I can live this up. Here's my challenge. Here's my encouragement. Let that despair lead you to the cross. It is only because of the cross of Jesus that we can have hope of living out the Sermon on the Mount. The cross of Christ does not make the Sermon on the Mount void of meaning, but rather it fulfills us and it, it gives us the strength to live it out. That's why Jesus' call to repent comes before the Sermon on the Mount. The gospel, dear friends, is the foundation for the Sermon on the Mount. Our only hope to experience the Sermon on the Mount is if we go back to the gospel, to the cross, to repentance, for the kingdom of heaven is indeed near. Let us pray. Father, this morning, if there's anyone among us who, have heard, who has heard your message and is not yet a committed Christian, a declared Christian, a true Christian, Lord, I pray that they would repent and come to you so they may experience the new birth of the kingdom. Father, for all of us who have experienced this new nature, Lord, I pray that you would give us an open heart as we examine ourselves, as we examine the, the demands of the kingdom, the perspectives of the kingdom. And Father, more so, as we look to Christ, who came to fulfill the demands of the law, so that in Christ we too may fulfill what the kingdom requires. Father, we pray that we would be a community of people who live on earth, the kingdom of heaven. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.